So if you take your scriptures and turn with me to Psalm 90, we'll be reading the entire psalm. Psalm 90, would you please give ear to the reading of God's word. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or even you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn to destruction and say, Return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday, when it is past, and like a watch in the night. You carry them away like a flood. They are like a sleep. In the morning, they are like grass which grows up. In the morning, it flourishes and grows up. In the evening, it is cut down and withers. For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we are terrified. You have our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. For all our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our years like a sigh. The days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they're 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow. For it is soon cut off, and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. So teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? And have compassion on your servants. Oh, satisfy us early with your mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad in all our days. Make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us, the years in which you have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of your hands. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Grant, O Lord, a discerning spirit to the hearts of your people. You have told us that you change times and seasons. You set up kings and dispose them. You give wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who seek it from your word. You sent your only begotten son into this world to reveal your character to us. He has given us everything we need to serve you and carry your gospel to this world. Open your word this morning, O Lord, and guide us in our learning. We pray this in the name you have given us that is above every name, the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. This 90th Psalm starts off the fourth book of Psalms, which runs from Psalm 90 to Psalm 106. It's offered by Moses. Now, you must know there's some who try to, to say Moses didn't write this book. There are always those who want to detract from the word of God by saying no prophet of God could have written this message in his day. We have seen that with Psalms, the Psalms of David, Asaph, and with a number of the prophets' writings. What they want to do is try and take away the idea that God is sovereign and his word infallible and inerrant. They don't want you to believe God is only communicating with you through the Bible. They want an open and continuing revelation from God. That leaves open that we must have a hierarchy of men to judge what is from God and what is not. 
That puts everyone at the mercy of some men to know what God has said. I believe Moses wrote this psalm and that this message came by the inspiration of God and God alone. Don't allow anyone to take the supernatural work of God's word away from you. No man has the right to add to or take away anything from the word of God. Understanding that Moses, the writer of this psalm, shows that he is the first composer of a sacred hymn. This is the oldest psalm. It was composed during the time of Israel in the wilderness. So this psalm was written earlier than any other psalm by at least 500 years and maybe more. In this introduction, I have relied on an 18th century Christian historian named Isaac Taylor. This psalm has been called the most awe-inspiring psalm of human compositions. It is filled with some of the deepest meditations known. It has some of the highest theological thoughts and is considered to be the best psalm in imagery. It is accurate in how it depicts human life. It paints the picture of life as troubled, transitory, and sinful. It is also true in how it shows the eternal God. It depicts our God as sovereign and as the eternal judge. It also pictures God as the refuge and hope of mankind. It shows that even in the midst of the most severe trials, of trials of faith, they do not lose their confidence. It draws from their lips words of prayer, opening for them an intimate session of refreshment. We see in this that the message is wrapped in mystery until the day of revelation showing the doctrine of immortality. We see in the seed of the shortness of this lifetime and the sadness of these few years men are given which are filled with trouble and are so brief and gloomy. We are brought into a contrast with the divine immutability. The unchangeableness of God which is played out in terms of submissive devotion. This is where the embryo of eternal life is planted. You can see no stain or pride or petulance, that is, half-uttered blasphemies. There are no words that malign, none that bring disputing, nor any attempt at the arrangement of the justice or goodness of God. Moses, in the writing of this psalm, was old. He had seen much. Age and experience had taught him that even in the midst of the perpetual changes which were taking place in the universe, one thing remained immutable. That one thing was the faithfulness of the one who was from everlasting to everlasting. How far back was Moses looking here? To the times of the patriarchs, to the slavery in Egypt, to the time of the burning bush, to Pharaoh and his war chariots, to the parting of the waters of the sea, and to the weariness of the march through the wilderness. In all of these things Moses experienced from Deuteronomy 32.4, he says, He is the rock, his work is perfect. Moses was also looking back even further, as he said in Deuteronomy 32.7, Remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations. He was looking back at all the, the people of God as he penned the words, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. I'm sure he was thinking back to Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the patriarchs. 
the flood would have been a thousand years before Moses and all showed forth the truth of God's work with men. Consider what we looked back to so as to confirm the truth of our Lord. We can see the thousand years Moses could see. And then we can add two more thousand years to observe God's work with mankind until Christ. Our God remained completely unchanged over these 3,000 years. And what a comfort, what a delight to us. He has revealed to us over those years his plan for us. He gave us a written record and sent one to teach all we needed to have life eternal with him. We also have 2,000 years since Christ to observe his plan. The, the psalm we are looking at this morning is a revelation to us of the grace of the great God. The God who created men and is preparing some to be his children to live with him for eternity. Moses lifts his voice before God about the frailty of man and bless, and based on that call to God, he asks for compassion. He's asking to have compassion on these people. He first contemplates man's needs, and second, he petitions God in prayer. Verse 1, Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. It is important that you recognize that these words were written for the Israelites in the desert. These are the folks going through the wilderness. This is how you will understand what every verse means. Moses is saying that even as wonders in the wilderness, the Israelites found their home in God. This would have been the same as their forefathers who left Ur and wandered in the land of Canaan. To those who are saints, the Lord Jehovah, who is the self-existent God, stands instead of house or mansion. He is shelter, comfort, protection, perseverance, and love to all who are his own. Charles Spurgeon says, Foxes have holes and birds have the air of the air have nests, but the saints dwell in God and have also done so in all ages. We don't dwell in tabernacle or temple anywhere in this world. We dwell in God. This has always been true of God's people as long as there's been a church. It is to the New Testament saints that the Holy Spirit said in 1 John 3, 24, Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. Did not our Lord Jesus say in John 15, 4, Abide in me? And he added in John 15, 5, He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. It is sweet to speak with the Lord as Moses did, saying, Lord, you have been our dwelling place. How was this dwelling place formed? Look at verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You clearly see in this verse the idea of the birth of this world. Before the first patriarch was born, the Lord was glorious and self-sufficient. He formed the mountains with his hand. He, before the world was formed, he planned it all, even from everlasting to everlasting, showing he is God. Creation calls out to the fact there is a God. He is the everlasting God and creator of all things. He is a suitable abode for mankind, and that is shown as truth because he is immutable. He does not change. 
The whole idea in this is to show that God is eternal and the life of mankind on this earth is brief. Therefore, you see God's control over mankind. Verse 3, you turn to destruction and say, return, O children of men. A more understandable translation of this verse might be, you turn man to destruction and say, return, O children of men. This means man will return to dust. Man's body is melted down into its base elements, turned to powder. They will be returned to the dust from which they were made. A word created them, and a word destroys them. Notice in this how the action of God is made manifest. Man does not die because of the decree of fate or the actions of law. No, the Lord is made the agent of all. His hand turns and his voice speaks. He creates us by his word. And my friends, no power on earth or hell can kill us. God is in control. We are subjects of God, not subjects of sin, not subjects of men, nor of time. His decree alone can give us life or bring life to an end. He is the sovereign Lord, the creator and controller of time. How do we measure time? Look at verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, and like a watch in the night. A thousand years. Boy, seems like a long time to us, doesn't it? We can see so many things happen over this time period. Nations rise and fall. Prophecies come and go. Countless events change. Yet to our Lord, a thousand years is but as a day, and a day is a thousand years. God's not subject to time. He is the controller of time. Time is his tool for governing mankind. Mr. Spurgeon says, a moment yet to come is, no, is longer than yesterday when it is past. For that no longer exists at all. Yet such is a millennium to the eternal. Time is the tool. It's the tool that guides our life. Verse 5, you carry them away like a flood. They are a, like a sleep. In the morning they are like grass which grows up. Men are carried away by the flood of time. The Lord sweeps away by death the succeeding generations. As the winds sweep the clouds from the sky, so time removes the children of men. Their time on this earth is like a sleep, and their plans nothing more than a dream. He says, in the morning, they are like grass which grows up. Grass is green. It's green in the morning, but turns brown at night and is but feed for the horses. We, we, so we understand men are changed. They're changed in a moment from health to corruption. We are not mighty trees, but mere grass, which has its time of growth and vigor, but lasts only a short time. What he wants you to see is that upon this earth is there anything more frail than men. Can we do anything to make our way before God holy to give us hope that our works will achieve what we desire? The Israelites in the wilderness knew their sin. They tried after rejecting God's call to go in and take the promised land to do exactly that without God's blessing. They failed. 
And they came under the wrath of God. There was no need for them to try and figure out the immediate cause of their death. Verse 6. In the morning it flourishes and grows up. In the evening it is cut down and withers. Here he uses the grass of the field to represent mankind and his life. The history of grass is very simple. It's sown, grown, blown, mown, and gone. You can easily see the life of man is much the same. Man comes into this world healthy and grows in strength and maturity only to experience decay until life is lost. What we see in man is a great change coming in a very short time. Spurgeon shows the morning saw the blooming and the evening sees the withering. The Israelites had seen more miracles than most of the rest of mankind. They were on top of the world as they left Egypt. After they failed their failed attempt to take the promised land, they were on the bottom. You can see they were consumed by God's wrath and they knew it. Verse 7. For we have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath we are terrified. You must understand. Your mortality is not accidental. Neither is it inescapable. But sin has provoked the Lord to anger, and therefore we die. This was especially true of the people in the wilderness. Their lives were cut short by God's justice. They fell not because of natural decline, but by the well-deserved justice of God. Because of Jesus Christ, death has changed in how it affects men. Anger and wrath were the sting of death, but now love and mercy. Love and mercy conduct us to heaven through the grave. No fire consumes like God's anger, and no anguish so troubles his wrath. He is the wonderful truth of the new covenant, our substitute, Jesus Christ. And he has delivered us from the terrors of death into the glorious wonders of salvation. Blessed be our substitute. God knows our history. He knows our iniquities. Look at verse 8. You have our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. God sees and knows all of your sins as he did the people of Israel in the desert. You cannot hide from God any of your actions. They are ever before him. This is true both of the Israelites and of you as a Christian. Jesus came to reveal God to us because there was no way we could ever know him without his grace. The prophet says in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. There's no way, absolutely no way, we can comprehend the nature of God So there is no way we can understand his thoughts. That was why Jesus came with the revelation of God's new covenant. He came to show us the grace and mercy of God the Father. Verse 9. For all our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our, our years like a sigh. What we see here is that life is compared to a sigh, to a story, if you will that is told and forgotten, which is but a breath which disappears into nothing. 
It disappears as soon as it's spoken, or it goes to a meditation, a thought, which is just as fleeting. This makes it very important that the tale of our lives be illustrations of heavenly goodness, not tales of woe as the Israelites were in the desert. Verse 10. The days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they're 80 years. Yet their boast is only labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. This is primarily spoken about Israel in the wilderness. Those who came out of Egypt were 20 years old and up. They fell when they, they all fell within the span of 40 years. Those who lived the longest spent their time in labor and sorrow until they were cut off like the grass and were blown away. Like the Israelites, we have been brought out of the sinful world and have sojourned in a wilderness. And like them, we have murmured and offended God our Savior. Thus, like them, we fall and perish. He shows the limits to our lives, showing they can be from 70 years to 80 or more according to your strength. Labor and sorrow are also our portion in this life. When you consider the pain and suffering this life lays on us, why would you want to stay here? If you have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you have read where Paul says, I has not seen nor ear heard nor the mind conceived what God has prepared for you in in his presence, would you not want to rise up? Rise up from this life and fly away to the presence of your Lord and Savior? Verse 11, who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. Moses saw men dying all around him. He was constantly doing funerals. Can you not imagine how disturbed he was at the terrible results of this divine displeasure? This shows us today the terror that comes with God's anger. If we turn away from the light of the gospel as a nation, there will be an outpouring of wrath on our nation. It will be such that it will fill our cemeteries and remove the mercy of God from our nations, churches, and people. The Israelites of Moses' day had only the word of God calling them to hear and believe. And look at the terror they suffered under. Today we have the gospel of Jesus Christ and Christ himself with the Holy Spirit to lead us into the promised land. We must not be as hard-headed and hard-hearted as the Israelites were. We must open our hearts and follow our Lord lest we find the terror of his wrath at our feet. We have heard the words of contemplation Moses has spoken about the frailty of man and the shortness of life contrasted with the eternal nature of God. He now turns to the Lord in prayer. Verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. We must be the one who numbers our days and takes a right look at the shortness of life in comparison to the scope of eternity. That will that in eternity stretches out before us and will soon bring us into a well-established wisdom. George Horn, an 18th century English pastor and writer, said concerning verse 12, The wise man will learn to give preference where it is due, to do good and suffer evil upon earth, expecting the reward of both in heaven. 
The means for accomplishing this is the foundation of prayer. Make us wise. Bless us, Lord. But wise, make us wise unto salvation. That wisdom should cause us to cry out. It's verse 13. Return, O Lord, how long, and have compassion on your servants. As death reigned over mankind, God is represented as absent. He is by the faithful employed to return. They call out to him, come in mercy to us again. They beg, do not leave us to perish. They cry out, suffer not our lives to be both brief and bitter. What we can learn from this is that as sin drives us from God, so repentance cries out to God to return to us. Moses continues with, and have compassion on your servants. The prophet admits that the Israelites are still God's servants. Yes, they had rebelled, but they had not totally forgotten their God. They still know they owe him their allegiance. This became the grounds for Moses to ask for God's pity. Moses asked, will not a man spare his own servants? Even though God punished Israel, they were still his people. He had not disowned them. Therefore, Moses entreats him to deal with them favorably. Now, how does he do this? Look at verse 14. Oh, satisfy us early with your mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Moses pleads for the people of Israel. He reminds God that since they must die, he asks that a speedy mercy be upon him and his brethren. Spurgeon concerning this says, Good men know how to turn the darkest trials into arguments at the throne of grace. Moses was a good man who knew how to intercede with God for the Israelites. Moses knew how to bring his pleas before God in prayer. He knew that there is only one thing, one satisfying food for the Lord's people, and that is the favor of their God. Moses seeks for this with all his heart. He remembered the manna that fell every morning to feed the people. So he asked the Lord to send his satisfying favor to fill them and satisfy them for this short life they're given. He asked, are we so soon to die? Then, Lord, do not starve us while we live. Why does he ask this? That we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Here's why Jesus Christ came into this world. He came to fill our hearts and souls with a rejoicing and gladness. Moses knew to ask for such a blessing. We know that blessing is here right now. It's waiting, waiting to be received by all who place their hope and trust in the Savior. This generation of Israel, Israelites were offered a promised land, and they could have had it, but they didn't believe God. Do you believe God? Have you asked yourself that question, do I really believe God? We will all stand on the brink of entering the true promised land, heaven, if we come in the name of Jesus Christ. God has prepared that wonderful land for us. A land our eyes have never seen or our ears never ever heard about. A land our hearts cannot conceive. It is a place of eternal joy and gladness. 
a place that will give peace and rest to every heart that enters it. Look at the promise that goes with this. Verse 15. Make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us, the years in which we have seen evil. The lives of the Israelites in the desert were lives of sorrow and grief. Would that not also be true of any unregenerate person today? But it is also true of believers to some degree because sin is all around us and fighting against us every minute. Moses calls for the Lord to make us glad. But how does he say that gladness will come? He says it will be according to the days of our affliction. The Apostle Paul explains this in 2 Corinthians 4.17. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. The afflictions of this life are nothing. Nothing compared to the glory of what is to come. The time of this life is also nothing to eternity. Stand fast in the face of your troubles. And remember, this life is brief when compared to an eternity with your Lord. The promise is eternal glory to those who have suffered in the Lord's name. Verse 16. Let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children. Note how he uses the word servants here. To serve God as far as the law would allow. You realize that? That's all you can do under the law is serving. It is only in Jesus Christ that we go from servants to friends. In Christ, we're given great liberty. Liberty to be what we were created to be, friends of God, children of God. Moses calls asking God to make his work appear to his people so they can know the glory that is present. He desires that the children of this wicked group who refused God's direction and died in the wilderness will receive the glory of God. The children of the unregenerate can through Jesus Christ receive salvation to know God's glory. Verse 17. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Moses prays for the children of Israel that that shall not see the promised land because of their sin. They have struggled. Many of them have repented, but not to the point the Lord would rescind the consequences of their sin. Now, he did the same thing with Moses at his death because of his sin. They want the beauty of God's word to be a part of their legacy. And they want that shown through their children. Their children shall enter the promised land and they will build the nation of Israel. Is this not the same thing we see in Christ's day? The work of the Israelites in building and keeping the nation prepared the way for Christ and the true Israel is being built by those who followed and believed in Jesus as the Messiah. Moses opened his heart for the children of Israel and laid his concerns at the foot of the throne of God. He was well prepared, aware of the sinful actions of these people. He also knew that he served a merciful and gracious God. In this prayer, you can learn so much about that God. You can also see through the words of this psalm a view of the coming Messiah. 
Israel trapped in Egypt shows the slavery of sin all men are trapped in. The deliverance of the children of Israel from that slavery is picture is a picture of our salvation. Their time in the wilderness of, of which Moses was writing is a picture of the beginning of the process of sanctification of the new believer. Jesus Christ came into this world to make all of these things happen for you today. If you want that salvation, you must open your mind and acknowledge your sin. You must recognize Jesus Christ and his perfect life, atoning death, and resurrection victory as the only path to salvation. You must set your heart, set your heart to follow his word and let it change your heart and mind so Christ is your only God. For there is no other way to restoration with God. Let us pray. Father, we know you have promised that you will redeem our lives and take us to yourself. What a glorious promise. What a promise that gives us hope that you will never forsake us nor leave us. We know that we are sinners unable to do for ourselves anything spiritual. We place our hope in the one you sent into this world to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. We know. We know that you yourself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. After those, after that, those of us who are left will be caught up together to meet our Lord and so will be with you forever. We thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.